So just let yourself listen, and if there's something that's valuable, you'll remember it, and if it's not, don't bother. I'd like to begin tonight with a story from Africa, wonderful African story, about a man, it's from East Africa, where part of what is uh, of great value to those who, the people who lived in East Africa, was their cattle. It's the way that they lived and, and uh, the way that they ate and the way that they traded. And it happened that there was a man living there who had a small herd of the most beautiful cattle. They were half black and half white. Partly what made them so beautiful is that the half black and half white cattle were the ones that are said to uh, encompass the sun and the moon, the night and the day. Um, But he was a little bit jealous about his cows, so he kept them in a clearing in this deep, dark forest. Um, And you had to go through the forest to get to the clearing where the cows were. And it was a a difficult forest because it was so deep and dark. The name of the forest was Dukadukduk. And the reason the forest was named Dukadukduk was that's what your heart would do as you entered the dark forest, (laughs) because it was so dark and so deep. And he would go and care for his cattle and then come out. And after some days, uh, at one point, he began to notice that they weren't giving much milk. So he brought fresh grass to them to feed them better. Still, not so much milk. He brought straw and all the best things he thought that the cattle could eat. Not much milk. So he began to reflect, maybe somebody's taking the milk, stealing the milk. So he went into duk-a-duk-duk at night, right? And waited by the edge of the clearing to watch, to see. And as the cattle were sleeping, he sat there looking at the stars in the night sky, and several of the stars got brighter and brighter and started to come down. And as the stars came closer and closer and almost touched the ground in this clearing about the cows, out of the starlight stepped a handful of beautiful maidens, each carrying a milking basket. And they went and proceeded to milk these most beautiful cows to take the milk back up to heaven. And he looked at them and he said, this would be a fine maiden to marry indeed, looking at one of them. And so just when they were finishing milking, he ran out and he grabbed her by the arm. And he said, you've been coming and taking the milk from my cows, unasked. And she said, yes, we love your cows. And he said, well, you may love your cows, but I love you. So... Um, you, are, you are indeed beautiful. Will you come and stay with me? And then you can have all the milk of the cows that you like, both at nighttime and in the day. We can care for them together and do all those other things that men and women do. And uh, So she said, she said, I will come. And she bid goodbye to her sisters who went back to be stars. And she had brought with her two baskets, the milking basket, which she used, and another basket with a cover on it. 
And she said, O oh, husband, when they were married, I just ask you one simple thing. Please do not open the other basket that I have brought. Everything else of mine we share, but please leave that basket alone. You know how these old stories go, don't you? <laughs> so they took care of the cattle and they lived a beautiful life for some time, um, gracious and loving. And she was out one day collecting wood for cooking for the fire, or collecting grass for the cows, so forth. And he was sitting in his hut, and over in the corner was this basket. And he thought, well, it was her basket, but now that we're married, it's our house and our things. I guess it's our basket now, so it'd probably be okay for me to look in the basket. And he walked over to the corner of the room, kind of slowly, and then he lifted the top of the basket to look inside, and he saw nothing. And he began to laugh. There's nothing in this basket. This is the most ridiculous thing. Don't look in the basket. There's nothing in there. And he laughed for a while to himself, and he closed it and went about his business. And later that, early that evening, his lovely wife returned, and she looked at him. She said, you know, you have a little bit of a smirk on your face. What have you been up to? Did you look in the basket? <laughs> she knew something was changed. And he said, well, I did look. He said, I mean, I figure it was our basket now. And, and I laughed, he said, because there's nothing in it. And as he said that, tears began to roll down her cheeks, and she said, I love you, but I cannot stay. And he said, why not? She said, because in that basket was spirit. It was the light of the stars. It was the spirit I brought down from heaven. And if you can't see that, I cannot stay with you. And she took her two baskets and returned back to the stars. So that's the end of this particular story. <clears throat> now, one of the beautiful things that you can do as you listen to these old stories, which carry a kind of archetypal or deep wisdom for hundreds of years or thousands of years from human beings around the earth that tell them over and over, is to feel where you might be if you had to have a place in the story. Are you the beautiful cows? Or are you the one tending them? Or are you the ones who come down out of the night sky to get the milk? Or maybe you are the night sky or the stars. Or are you the one who's been betrayed where the promise was broken? This story tells the truth that everything is wedded to nothing. That this form of life that we find ourselves in as human beings is wedded to something that is without form. You could call it spirit or soul or light. But whatever we are came from beyond this form. You know that. I mean, everything that exists came out of the stars, didn't it? 
the whole earth cooled from stars. We were once on fire in the center of some flaming star. Out of the void, out of the pregnant void, we could call it, there arose form. And we are born of that form of the earth. The line I like from Mary Oliver where she says um, that she, she, she says, I am a bride married to amazement. To come to this world of form in the beginning is to look in, around and say, wow, where did I get myself born into this time? A human realm, look at this. But then the amazement that children have and the spirit that they carry tends to get lost and covered over. The Buddhist practices and teachings, like the Heart Sutra, which begins, form is not different than emptiness, and emptiness is not different than form. Or the texts that are read to the dying, Tibetan Book of the Dead and so forth, O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddha, sons and daughters of a good family, remember your true nature. Remember the clear, pure, white light from which everything in the universe comes to which everything in the universe returns. The original nature of your own heart and mind, the natural state, unmanifest. Let go into this light, trust it, merge with it. It is your own true nature, it is home. Or the Diamond Sutra, which says, Thus shall we think of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, and a dream. In the materialistic culture that we live in, our perception can become terribly one-sided, and we forget the other reality from whence we come. We get involved and filled with the things we have to do or make, our responsibilities, our mortgages, our jobs, our families, our cows basically, that we have to tend, right? Our portfolio. And we forget this consciousness, the mind and the consciousness, the states of the heart that move all of this life that we know. Rabindranath Tagore puts it this way. Usually we think of the mind as a mirror receiving accurate impressions of the world outside, not realizing that the mind itself is the principal element of creation. Or from the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, all is mind-made, all that we are arises out of mind. With our thoughts and mind we create the world, speak or act, with an impure mind and heart, and trouble will follow you like the wheel that follows the ox drawing the cart. But speak or act with a pure heart or mind, 
and happiness will follow you as close as your shadow, unshakable. When we come back to a contemplative practice of meditation, to sit, we sit to awaken to this reality, to remember it, to rest in that state of the heart and mind that is open behind all the activity of the day, to remember that timeless reality that is always present, our true nature. My teacher called it the one who knows, to sit and rest in that knowing heart. In its true nature, mind is open, timeless, containing all things, yet not limited by them, being of the voidness, clear, transparent, without beginning, without end. This is from the Book of Liberation. And to meditate is an invitation to trust in this openness, to learn to rest where we are. Yet, if we look at the instructions in the practices of mindfulness given by our elders in this tradition, Theravada Buddhism is the way of the elders, we focus not just on the basket, on this emptiness, on spirit, but on the cows too. As it says in the Sufi tradition, praise Allah, but tie your camel to the post. (laughs) Not just the basket, but the cows as well. For some, people come to spiritual life seeking somehow to escape their bodies, to get away from the world of form. And you end up with what one person called a disembodied clarity. You know what that's like, right? Rumi put it this way, sometimes we put saddlebags on Jesus and let the donkey run loose in the pasture. We get it backwards. And in the texts of instruction from the Buddha, he says, It is within this fathom-long body and mind that is found all of the teachings of suffering and all of the teachings of liberation of the Buddhas. All the dharmas are found right here. So with our attention, as we begin to meditate and listen and open with a mindful awareness, we can study what is called nama, and rupa, name and form, or mind and matter, or consciousness and embodiment. And begin to see that each arises dependent on the other. Neither are graspable or possessable by us. Try to tell your mind not to think. See if it listens. Try to tell your body to feel a certain way and not another way. Tell it don't grow old. See how far you get. 
What we do as we sit and pay attention is to learn the nature of form and emptiness, of consciousness and human existence, the play of two, and respect how they dance together. There was a teacher of non-duality, a a disciple of a great Indian guru who talked in most of his teaching about the freedom that he discovered by saying you are not the body, which can be a very helpful teaching at certain points if you're very identified with the body. But she took that part, which was, we might say, only part of the equation, And that was the song that she sang as a teacher. You are not the body. You are not the body. To awaken to the spirit is to disidentify with this body and its feelings, in some way to leave. And she did. And that's the way that she taught. And it happened that toward the end of her life, she was a smoker, so she got emphysema. She was pretty miserable and had a lot of trouble breathing. And toward the end of her life, She called her two children to her, her adult children, and said, enough of this dragging on and hardly being able to breathe and suffering so much. I just want to end my life. Help, I've collected all these pills. I want to say goodbye to you and take all this medicine that I've collected and just be done with this. You're not the body anyway. So they were asked to assist her to do this. And they did, being dutiful children, because she was pretty sick anyway. She took all this medicine, they said their loving goodbyes to her. And then she woke up three days later in the ICU in the hospital because she didn't succeed exactly in her task of uh, leaving the body. So the doctors brought her back to life in the hospital, but more than that, her life force brought her back to life. And her children came. And there they were, the mother that was supposed to have died, who they were asked to help. And they got very angry with her, because it's not really the right thing to ask of your children. And while they were at it, they had a few more things to say, as it turned out. (laughs) Because it wasn't terribly easy to have a mother keep saying, you are not the body, you know, instead of putting out milk and cookies and holding you when you're, you know knees are skinned or when you're having a hard time. So they had to work out a number of things with this mother of theirs. And she hung around for a whole other year um, taking the curriculum of this human life before it was time for her to leave. You see, this is the place of spirit. Even the stars come down for milk to this realm. A poem from Antonio Machado. The wind, one brilliant day, called to my soul with an odor of jasmine. In return for the odor of my jasmine, I'd like all the odor of your roses. I have no roses. All the flowers in my garden are dead. Well then, I'll take the withered petals and the yellow leaves and 
the waters of the fountain. The wind laughed, and I wept, and I said to myself, What have you done with the garden that was entrusted to you? In interviewing various spiritual figures for this last book I did, I spoke to one elder, a Catholic father, a teacher. He said, I came from a poor white family where we drank and lived hard. The men treated the body like a truck that you used and ignored. In the church, it got worse. I hated to deal with my body. I lived on coffee, then on scotch. Gradually, as I looked at the simple people who came to talk to me and saw how many tortured bodies there were, as well as tortured souls. My faith and love got past all that junk about sin and the body in the church. It doesn't have to be so hard. I realized that Christ taught I had to love my enemy, and I took a vow of nonviolence, and this included my body. My practice became, do not torment myself, do not escalate the pain, and I began to teach it to others. It turned into a practice of gratitude. I get up in the morning, and the care of my body is where I start. It's poignant how simple it is. We are here in this embodied mystery. And to be embodied is to live within a certain suffering and beauty, within aging and sickness, within birth and death. And to be human is to live within the realm of complexity and messiness and art and love and humor and irony and melancholy, of tragedy and comedy, of the inescapable opposites. This is where we've been born. We might desire a world of spirit, perfection, harmonious, and yet we all have to deal with Columbine. We all have to deal with Kosovo or Afghanistan or the racism and injustice that are around us in our cities and in our nation. We have to deal with weddings and divorces, with wealth and poverty. It is the way that it is in this realm. And to see with the eyes and the heart of the Buddha is to open to this human life and see it as it is. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way, being, being able to touch or encounter, awake to the kind of suffering that we encountered during the Vietnam War can heal us of some of the suffering we experience when our lives are not very meaningful or useful. When you confront the kind of difficulties we face during the war, you see that you can be a source of compassion and a great help to many suffering people. 
in that intense suffering, you feel a kind of relief and joy within yourself because you know that you are for a moment an instrument of compassion. Understanding such intense suffering and realizing compassion in the midst of it, you become a joyful person, even if your life is very hard. So the idea of sacred attention to this life, the idea of spiritual life, is neither to hurry up and try to fix everything, nor, on the other hand, to ignore the suffering of the world. Instead, it is to awaken to what is, how things are, and to illuminate our passage through this world with a wise and compassionate heart. To find the basket of spirit that is here, So how do we find it? One way, a poem from Rumi. One night a man was crying, Allah, Allah. His lips grew sweet with the praising until a cynic said, So, I've heard you calling out to Allah, but have you ever gotten any response? The man had no answer to that. He quit praying and fell into a confused sleep. As he dreamed, he saw Kadir, the guide of souls, in a thick green foliage. Why did you stop praising Allah? Because I never heard anything back. This longing of your heart that you express is the return message. The grief you cry out from draws you toward union. Your pure sadness that wants help is the secret cup in the heart. Listen to the moan of a dog for its master. That whining is the connection. There are love dogs no one knows the names of. Give your life to be one of them. How do we find it? This longing our very messy life, our loneliness, our love, those are the places that carry the spirit of the heart, our struggles. How to open to this mystery? Spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, sitting in meditation, all the other practices that we might have are simply ways to remind us to have that basket of the Spirit present wherever we are. And it can be meditation practice, but maybe it's your gardening that's the place of the Spirit, your discipline. Maybe it's parenting. Maybe it's writing poetry or running an honorable business with some dignity. Maybe it's the practice of prayer or of service. If we do a practice not to get some goal, not to be somewhere else, but to act as the parent or the teacher or the gardener or the merchant or the healer 
in a way that illuminates where we are. We wed together the body and the spirit, the body and the heart. The practice of mindful attention is a kind of tending to this life we've been given, not as a goal, but as the presence that we bring of our heart. If you want to perfect yourself, make yourself some kind of great spiritual person, you'll have a really hard time doing it. Our personalities are not terribly amenable to that. You get a body, you know, and it's fine to jog it and massage it and kind of take care of it and clean it and stuff like that, but it's sort of limited. It's kind of the way that it is, right? Turns out you get a personality, it's pretty much the same thing, you know? You can work on it a little bit here and there, and that's not a bad thing in many of our cases. But the idea of perfecting yourself is kind of silly when there isn't really a separate self to perfect at all. It's just a vessel, a vehicle, this body and personality. To sit in meditation and train the heart in this mindful openness is to release the small sense of self in a moment to step beyond the body of fear, to remember that spirit that illuminates and moves our life, our breath, to remember and trust that the heart can be free anywhere we find ourselves, any moment, here and now, the sure heart's release is available. Sound like good ideas, yeah? But how do we really do it? How do we wed the the basket of stars, of spirit, and the cows? There are three simple and yet luminous practices that the Blessed One, the Buddha, described for those who wish to follow his way of awakening. His way isn't a better way, and it's like a lot of the other ones, but it was the words that he could find to offer this. And he said to his followers, to his monks and nuns, when they'd found some freedom in themselves, in their hearts, and in their beings, he said to them, Where is this passage? Oh, well, what did he say? <laughs> I almost can do it by heart. My friends, now that you have awakened to your freedom of heart, go forth into the world for the good of those you meet, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, with compassion for the world, for the benefit, the blessing, the happiness of all beings, and teach the Dharma that is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. Reveal that spiritual life to be found by every being, complete 
and pure, in spirit and form, the doors to the deathless are open. So what are the simple practices, these luminous practices that were taught by those who wandered out from the collective around the Buddha? The first was the practice of compassion. It's sometimes called the practice of respect for other beings or of wise conduct. The fragrance of sandalwood Rose Bay and Jasmine can go only as far as the wind, but the fragrance of virtuous heart rises even to the gods. And so the first luminous practice is to tend to our words and our deeds in such a way that we do not bring harm to other beings. Traditionally, there are stories about reverence for life, not killing even small beings, but caring for every form of life, not stealing, but taking care with the things of this world, not being greedy with it, but sharing it, not speaking untruth, but using the words that we've been given to say that which is true and what is helpful, to speak the truth, to act the truth, to not cause harm in words and deeds. The dignity of this practice, the compassion of choosing not to harm others, illuminates our life. It brings a freedom of heart and spirit to any circumstance, even the most difficult. As Eddie Hillison wrote, You must be able to bear your sorrow, even if it seems to crush you. You'll be able to stand up again, for human beings are so strong, and your sorrow must become an integral part of yourself. You mustn't run away from it. Do not relieve your feelings through hatred. Do not seek to be avenged on your enemies, for they too sorrow at this moment. Give your sorrow all the space and shelter in yourself that is its due. For if you do, instead of reserving most of the space inside you for hatred and thoughts of revenge from which new sorrows will be born, then your sorrow, or, or then, then sorrow will never cease in this world. But if you have given sorrow the space it demands, then you may truly see that life is beautiful and rich, so beautiful and so rich It wants you to believe in the divine. There is a beauty that comes from the dignity and care we take with our life, with our words, with our deeds, and it frees the heart. There's a second form of luminous practice. Sila is the Sanskrit or Pali word for the first. The second is called samadhi, which means oneness or unity, coming to a whole, to this one point, a gathering together of our being, a unification of heart and mind. 
said in the Bible, if thine eye be single, the whole body will be filled with light. And the quality of samadhi is the invitation to come back to ourselves. You know, for most of you as I do, how scattered we are, how confused, how many different things are asked of us all at once, and the world that we're in becomes or appears to become fragmented and divided. And yet when we return to that wholeness, whether we're sitting on the bedside of our child as he or she sleeps at night and we look down at their sleeping form and realize that deep connection beyond all the words or struggles or difficulties of the day, or whether we're making music or making love or designing something that's just right or caring for another human being, when we're there with our whole body and heart and mind and spirit, the world becomes transparent, luminous. Thoreau put it this way. He said, many men go fishing their whole lives without realizing it's not fish they're after. We do all these things, but it's not the things themselves. It's the moments of presence that bring the happiness of heart, that bring us back to this freedom. Compassion and dignity in our words is luminous. Remembering to still the mind, to find that way to collect ourselves, to be centered and whole with what we do. Meditation really helps with that. W.S. Merwin says this so simply, I say to my breath once again, little breath, come from in front of me, go away behind me, row me quietly now as far as you can, for I am an abyss that I am trying to cross. And just to sit in the morning or the evening and let yourself feel the breath breathe itself and quiet the mind and reconnect with your heart is such a simple way of inviting the spirit to be in life. Compassionate conduct, coming back to our wholeness, and then this listening, this wholeness, this presence becomes the gateway for prajna, for wisdom. In silence, in deep listening, in sensing, in coming to be where we are, we start to see this life as it is. The dance of what we struggle with, our ambitions and fears, the small sense of self starts to open. And we can rest in the ground of awareness. You all know those times you've been caught up in some struggle or problem or difficulty, trying to get away from it, trying to make your life somehow else. And then you just sit down in the middle of it and say, here I am. This is where I am. And accept it. 
And even in the acceptance, there comes a kind of space that that's who we are, but it's only part of who we are. Something much greater is also true. A little story. Wisteria vines thrive in poor soil. Their secret is something called rhizobia, which are microscopic bugs that live underground in little knots on the roots of wisteria. They suck nitrogen gas out of the soil and turn it into fertilizer for the plant. They're not part of the plant, they're separate creatures, but they always live with it, a kind of underground railroad moving secretly up and down the roots. There's a whole invisible system for helping out the plant you'd never guess that was there. It's just the same with people. The wisteria vines on their own would barely get by, but put them together with rhizobia and they make miracles. We live in a sea of air and water and humans and food that we all share. The food you eat is planted by some and picked up by others and nourished by the rains and trucked by yet someone else. The air that we breathe, we share with the plants and the trees and the great natural world. And to become still is to invite that movement from the small sense of self to open to this great truth that unites the world, the wedding of body and spirit. There was a woman who came on a retreat many years ago who was grieving because her brother had died. He had died young in the AIDS epidemic. And she was so sad. And I said, what are you doing at this retreat? And she said, oh, I'm missing my brother so much. I'm looking for my brother everywhere. And that became her question. She would sit and walk. Where did he go? Where is my brother? Where is my brother? And she asked it of herself again and again. And she got quieter and stiller and deeper. And one day she came in and she said, he's everywhere. He used to be in that body of David that I knew but he's not there anymore. Now, when I walk out in the hills, I can talk to David. And when I go to the ocean, I find him there. And before I go to sleep at night, I can whisper to David and hear what he would say. And I said, where is your brother? And she said, he's right here. I am my brother. When we quiet and open, We feel this connectedness that is the truth. That we have the same last name as the oak trees and the madrone trees. And that we all have welfare children. We do. That we all have orphans as well as the children that we raise. And we realize we are the basket. Kabir mystic poet writes this. He said, inside this clay jug, that's this human body, there are canyons and pine mountains, 
and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside, and hundreds of millions of stars. The acid detests gold is there, and the one who judges jewels, and the music from the strings no one touches, and the source of all water. If you want the truth, I will tell you, said Kabir. Friends, listen. The Holy One you seek is here inside. So meditation isn't so much a self-improvement project as it is a deep listening, a returning, a coming back so we don't lose that basket of the Spirit. And I remember some years ago attending a teacher's conference and retreat, Buddhist teachers from around America. And toward the end of the conference, Robert Aiken Roshi, who was the senior Zen master at that event and one of the two or three most senior Western Zen masters, um, who was about 80 years old at the time, said that this was his last public event and he was planning on retiring. And he told some of his life story about being in a prisoner of war camp in Japan and getting um, acquainted with Zen there and having a whole lifetime of study of Zen. Teaching Zen sitting practice, teaching Zen koans. And when he finished, I raised my hand and I said, well, before you go, before you retire, would you give us the answer to one koan? He said he would do that, and he told some more stories. And finally he said, well, one of my first teachers was a man named Yogen Senzaki in 1952 or 53 in New York City. I met him. I went to study with Yogen Senzaki. And Yogen Senzaki had on the table by the door where you came in this beautiful piece of pottery, a bowl that had a spiral in it that went from the middle all the way out to the edges. And he said, after I told Yogan I was interested in learning Zen and I would like to study koans, Yogan said, I will give you a koan. And he held up this beautiful bowl to me and he said, see this spiral? I want you to tell me Does it go from the inside out, or does it go from the outside in? He said, but I don't want you to just tell me. I want you to show me that you know the answer to this koan with every cell of your body. Needless to say, there were a lot of bad answers that passed between Aiken Roshi and Yogan Senzaki for a time. But finally, he said, he did find the answer to the koan. And he said, I'll show it to you. And he stood up, and he was 80 years old, so when he stood up, his body was kind of a little bit uh, shaky. Kind of. He stood up after after speaking to us all. And he put his arms out like this, as if to become the bowl, 
He was this great bowl that he was trying to figure out, does it go from inside out or outside in? And he stood there for a little while, and then he turned one way, outside in. And then he turned the other way, inside out. And then he just stood there as the bowl bowed to us and sat back down. Now you have the answer to one Zen koan. (laughs) There is a wedding, a coming together, a presence that honors both body and spirit, the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. Within this fathom-long body and mind is found all the dharma, suffering and the end of suffering, difficulty and freedom of heart. And as one Zen master said, birth and death themselves are the place of liberation. They are nirvana. This is Zen master Dogen, just remember that your own birth and death itself is nirvana, and you will neither hate one as being birth and death or seek the other as being nirvana elsewhere. Only then can you be free. The present birth and death is the life of the Buddha, the awakened one. If you reject where you are with distaste, you thereby lose the life of the Buddha. If you grasp and attach to it, you also lose the life of the Buddha. Do not try to grasp it, nor speak it with words, but simply release your wish to be anywhere else and rest within your body and mind. Rest in the heart of the Buddha wherever you are, and you become awakened. It's so simple. The easiest way to become the Buddha is to refrain from harming other beings. Do not cling to birth and death. Work with deep compassion for all those who suffer and rest where you are. This is what it is to be a Buddha. Do not search any further. So when our life is informed by the spirit. We enter the marketplace and the shops, politics and art, and we see that this is the place of human practice. We bring our basket of the spirit with us. With a wise or compassionate heart, we remember that freedom is possible anywhere in any moment. My teacher said this, He said, there is a place that is not going forward and not going backward and not standing still. Rest in that place and your life will be reconciled. Let your eyes close, if you would, for a moment.
sit with your own breath and body. And let yourself first reflect on whether it is the basket or the cows that need tending in your life. Whether it is the body and the earth plane or whether it is the basket of spirit that's been forgotten. And reflect as well on the practices of your own spiritual life. What have you chosen to quiet the mind, to open the heart, to touch this world of form with compassion, to remember the spirit? I think about these evening talks as mostly just a reminder to something that we already know. I guess before you go, there's one more story I want to tell. It comes from Rumi. Three travelers were voyaging across the desert And after a long day, they fell in together and stopped at a caravanserai, which is kind of the hostel on the caravan routes across the deserts, where the host is supposed to bring out something beautiful, as is the custom in those countries, some taste of God's sweetness, as Rumi says. And the host brought out a big, tray of halwa, this beautiful, delicious sweet. That's how strangers are greeted in the desert. Two of them, one a Jew and one a Christian, said they were full, they had just eaten. But the Muslim had been fasting all day and he said, let's have a little of that now. The other two said, why don't we save it for tomorrow? And they got in a disagreement. 
Finally, they decided, well, we'll divide it in three parts. But the Muslim said, I can't eat if my brothers don't eat with me. And so he agreed to wait as well. And they all went to sleep. They slept, they wake, dress themselves in the morning, begin their prayers and devotions. Christian, Jew, Muslim, shaman, Zoroastrian, stone, mountain, river, each has a secret form of prayer, a secret way of being with the mystery, unique, not to be judged one from another. This subject never ends. So the three friends after prayer in a grand morning mood, let's tell what dreams we had last night. Whoever had the deepest dream gets the halwa. The wedding of spirit here. So it's agreed. The Jewish man begins the wanderings of his soul. Moses met me on the road. I followed him to Sinai. An opening door, light within light. Mount Sinai and Moses and I merged in an exploding splendor. The unity of the prophets. This was really his dream. Many Jews have such dreams. <laughs> then the Christian sighs, Oh, my dream. And his tears began to weep for joy. Christ took me into his arms and carried me up to heaven and to the heaven above heaven and the one beyond that to the fourth heaven, a pure, vast region. I cannot utter words. So beautiful was it. His dream is also deep. Muhammad came, said the third one, the Muslim. Muhammad came, and he told me where you two had gone. <laughs> you wretch, he went on, you've been left behind. Well, you might as well get up and eat something. Muhammad said that, asked the Christian and the Jew. The Muslim looked back. How could I disobey such glorious instructions? Would you not do as Moses or Jesus suggest? You're right, they say. Yours is the truest dream because it had immediate effect in your waking life. What matters is not the dream alone, not the basket of spirit, but how quickly you do what your soul directs. So in a moment we'll do a chant and then go back down the hill in this spring evening. Take the time to meditate or to walk in the mountains, to listen, to pray, to listen to music, whatever it is that connects the body and the spirit, because that's what makes life beautiful for us. And all these teachings and teachers and all that stuff is just really a simple reminder of what you already know. The chant tonight a simple single word, namo, 
in Sanskrit or in Hindi, when you meet someone in India, you bow to the person and say namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. Or I see you, I see who you really are, beyond all those veils. The root of that word namo in Sanskrit means to bow to, or honor, or pay respects to. It starts many of the great Buddhist texts, that word. So we'll chant the simple word namo nine times. And as we do inwardly, you can bow to whatever asks a bow, to your own body, mind, heart, to your children or parents, to your elders, to those in the world who are suffering, to those in the world that you wish to offer your respect. <clears throat> Na Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.